0: Actually, since I've been here as a senior pastor, we've taken a month of January off to kind of, when I was a youth pastor, we used to go on snow camp. So I'm like, why can't we do that with a big church? Let's go on snow camp. So every January, we'd have like a January series where we would just go off the beaten path, take some time to just think about God and worship Him. Well, this year, we're going to focus on what they just talked about the vision of a new facility added onto this facility but to do that we need to raise some money and you guys know that we've been talking a lot about it and so my job is just to be honest that's really what i want to do is i want to be honest now normally when we hear stewardship campaign this word this word stewardship always has scared me Because this says, all right, get busy, you servants of God. This is about you and what you're going to do. Most of my life, I feel like it's been my job to keep God happy, to work hard, to do what he wants me to do. And now with the stewardship campaign, I really have to get serious. But truthfully, what this is about, I want to take the pressure off of that, and a stewardship campaign is about really what God can do and what he, what he wants to do through us. So it's not necessarily you performing so we'll be happy or God will be happy. It's about trusting him to perform. And the way I want to do that, I just want to break down what I think the average mindset of the of the Christian is. I think we have this list in our mind. And it's a list. Here's, here's what I'm going to call this list. Well, actually, today, here's this this is the question we're going to talk about. What gets God really mad? What gets him riled up? Because I think what, what gets God riled up is not necessarily what the Bible says. You and I think God gets mad when we don't perform, when we're not good, or when we do bad things. Man, that makes God mad. Is that really what makes God mad? Is that what really riles him up? I think you'll be shocked today to learn what really riles God up. But I think deep down we think being good and bad is what riles. got up. So we, we have this list. I'm gonna call it the Verlangen Verboten list. I use German because German just sounds more intense. You know, like Nazis. And I'm German. So Verlangen means the things we ought to do. Those are the things you should do if you want God to be happy. The Verboten list are that's forbidden, don't do those things. I've compiled about a hundred different things through my life that I've, what I would say subconsciously, have put on this list. Believe it or not, the Jews call this list the mitzvot Tesa list, where they have 613 specific laws that are driven out of the Torah. Things to do, that is mitzvot Tesa is what you should not do. 613 that they derive, and that's doing the law. But we're we're not law keepers, are we? But we are deep down. Like we really do think if we don't do some things, God will be angry. So for instance, I'm going to go through this list. Here's my list. First of all, you have generally. This is what we tell you to do. You must read your Bible, pray every day, go to church, and tithe. And you'll hear this is really we need to talk about tithing because people just don't tithe. Wish you' tithe. could, could do you know what we could do if more people would tithe and so the point of the way we talk is to inspire you by guilt or shame. Do you know what, do you know what we could accomplish if you guys had just tithe, do you realize that building over there is in your wallets right now you see you see how I, so oh if i don't give. I don't It's on me. It's I'm the problem. Yes, you are the problem. That's what pastors are supposed to communicate, right? We're supposed to motivate you by guilt and anger, fear. How many of you read your Bible every day, huh? Do you know what the percentage is of people that go to church that read their Bible? 10%. That's shameful. You see, you feel the guilt. Like, like, God's mad at me because I don't read my Bible. God gives you the Bible so you can know Him, not so you can perform for Him. Like that second one, pray every day. I feel so guilty about prayer. I'm sure you do. Why do we pray? Do we have to pray? We'll talk about why we do things in a second. But I think we, we you and I, are driven by this list. And if I do the list, I'm good. If I don't do the list, I'm bad. And I think when we enter into a campaign, it has the potential of putting more burden on this guilt that I already live in. Let me show you my guilt. Okay, when I was a kid, here's the stuff I really believe God wanted me to do. And if I didn't do it, he'd be mad at me. Obey your mom and dad. Don't talk back. No lip, don't be sassy. No swearing. Don't even use those words that s- sound like swear words. You know what I'm talking about. Like crud, don't use that word. Crap, don't say that from the pulpit. God's angry. No snacks in between meals. Don't do that. I, I really felt my, that I was really, if I snuck a Frito in between lunch and dinner, God was not happy. Eat all your peas. Don't hit your sister. I had four of them, so this was a tough one. Brush your teeth. Do your homework. Go to bed on time. Say your prayers. Here's my prayer before I'd go to bed every night. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God love commits me here ever this day. Be at my side, to light, to guard, to rule, to guide. Amen. Good night, Jesus. If I didn't say that, I felt God was mad at me. So that's how I'd pray it. I didn't, I didn't know what I was really saying, but I said it. Clean your room. Listen to your teacher, especially when she's a nun. Don't pick your nose. That was a big one. Wipe your shoes. Don't steal from the cookie jar. And don't steal the toy surprise. Since we had so many kids and the toy surprise, we had to put it in a jar at the end of the month. We would pass them and divvy them out. And if you stole it, oh, God was mad. That's how I felt. Then you get a little older, junior high, and all the things above still apply as you grow up. Junior high... Don't watch PB, PG movies because they swear. Don't wear jeans to school. I had a dress code. Don't wear jeans to school. Don't hang out with the druggies at Dairy Queen. That was bad. Don't stay too long at the arcade, you playing like Pac Man and Asteroids. That nothing good comes from that. Don't listen to AC/DC or Kiss. <laughs> bad. Don't eat snacks between meals. Snacks is a big deal at my house. Don't eat snacks. Don't stay up past 11 watching Benny Hill. That was bad. Very bad. Don't hang out with Ted Wagner. I can't tell you about Ted Wagner. Don't hang out with him. And then it got more intense. High school, don't watch our movies. Don't wander into Victoria's Secret at the mall. If you do and God finds you in there, you're going to die. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't do shrooms. Don't go to parties with seniors. Don't do that. No spin the bottle. Don't go to the dance with girls who wear black lipstick. That was bad. You didn't. It was kind of not talked about, but my sister would say, Chris, did you see what that girl has on her? I really didn't date too much in high school because I did have four sisters, and they would go up to girls that liked me and say, do not date my brother. So I was kind of off the hook on that one. <laughs> don't watch Friday the 13th. Don't quit a sports team once you join. That was a biggie, really. It was an unspoken one, but that was a biggie. Don't go parking with girls. Don't stay out past curfew. Don't take money from your dad's wallet. Because if your dad caught you, you'd be in bad shape. Uh, next one, adult. Don't use credit cards. Don't buy a brand new car. That's a big one because, you know, you roll that off the lot, you'll you lose 5000 right away. God's not happy with that. Don't gamble. Which means don't buy a lotto ticket. <laughs> guilt. Do you feel the guilt? It's seething, it's just soaking in. How dare you? You, you feel it like we feel that God is always mad. Stay away from Vegas. Don't spend your money on silly hobbies like comic books, golf. Oh, that's a bad one. Don't look too long at someone who's not your wife. God's watching. Uh, Don't go to the Indians' Browns dollar beer night. You really don't go to that. Don't buy shoes over 50 bucks. Don't vote for the wrong political party. Don't watch SNL and laugh at it. Don't root for the Wolverines. Do give the missions, though. Do do that. That's good, right? Mark and Becky, right. And good Christians do give the missions, especially after you eat Skittles, right? See? And then, oh, then it ramps up because I became a Baptist all of a sudden. Then it got heavy. (laughs) Obey every application point from every sermon you've ever heard. Oh. I've heard in sermons, you know the problem with sermons these days, they don't give enough application points. You know, four, four sermons a month, about that's 700 application points. I can't live like that. Wear a tie. Polish your shoes. Don't clap unless invited by the worship leader. That's actually a really good rule. That's a really good rule. Keep your hair short, no mullets, don't teach any other options than a rapture, don't be an Arminian, don't be a Calvinist, don't be nice to Catholics, don't question good presidents, don't agree with bad presidents, call the pastor, pastor. Don't clap after a good singer sings because you want all glory to go to God, not that person, that could be sin, don't do that. Don't enter an establishment that serves and supports alcohol. Be at every service when doors are open. No mixed bathing. No wearing skinny jeans. No tattoos. No telling jokes during the sermon if you're a pastor. Never miss Christmas Eve or Good Friday service. Be at every business meeting. Don't use drums. Don't let your kids go to public school. Evangelize and give the gospel every day. If you don't, you are a slacker, you evangelical hypocrite. Always give the stewardship campaigns. See? Flip it in there. And then you become older. And here's what I've learned about old people watching them. If you retire, it must be at a Christian community in Florida, if you're really going to retire. Or a Christian retirement home. You need to attend Wednesday night prayer meetings. You cannot play cards with face cards. You can play rook, but not euchre. No bingo, don't eat too much cheesecake or pumpkin pie at Shipshawana. Shipshawana is a good place to go. Don't eat too much there. Take all your vitamins and don't give in to the new music. It'll corrupt you. And then when you get to be a husband and a dad, you can't raise your voice with kids, you can't spank, you can't get your wife mad, you have to have a spotless house. Do you have a stain on your carpet before home fellowship group? Oh, God forbid Make your kids' mind at church. Lead devotions at dinner. If you're a man, you better be the leader in the home. You better lead in devotions. Don't let boys play video games. They're bad, violent. No slouching or couch sitting. Don't be on the couch too long. Don't work long hours. That's a workaholic, but don't spend too much time on hobbies. That's, you know, that's an apathetic wimp. So if you boil all these things down together, here's what God wants, that if you do this, if you do this, he'll be happy and he won't be riled up. I'm angry. Just do this. Be perfect as your heavenly father and heaven is perfect. It's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. And so when I look at this list, this list was really a subconscious list. I wrote this down because these are things I thought at one time. And so when I thought about this, here's what I really believed for a long time. Since I fail at nearly everything, God must be in a constant state of simmering anger towards me. Because I don't do what he wants me to do and I do what he doesn't want me to do, he must always be mad. So if one infraction occurs on any given day, I can assume God gets riled up. If this is true, my psyche is telling me he's probably mad at me again. And notice, I want you to notice something about this whole list. It seems like everything is put on me to make God happy. He cannot live well unless I'm living well. Did you ever live with a person like that? They're so hard to live with. If ever, You have to keep them happy. If that's what God's like, you know how miserable Christianity is? But it's miserable for majority of Christians because they really believe this. You know how I can tell they believe this? Because I hear people look, say, if more people would just give. And there's that attitude of, doggone gone it. People aren't doing enough. But I want to take you to a place which shows you what, what God really drives God crazy. And I think it's shocking. Go to the book of Numbers. I think this will surprise you. This is dealing with, we're going to go to Numbers 13, Numbers chapter 13 and 14. This may be, after I've been really thinking about it for a while, this may be one of the most um, life changing stories for all of us, not just Israel, but for all of us. Here's what the story's about it's about the Promised Land. They were living in Egypt. They were in slavery, they were in bondage, they had to make bricks, they got whipped, they didn't eat too much. God rescued them through the Red Sea, you probably remember that, then they wandered in the desert, the desert. They were going kind of hungry, so God gave them manna, where every morning they'd have bread. He'd give them some meat, give them water from the rock. And then he said, I have so much better for you, it's called the promised land, go take it. Go take it, because it's full of everything you've ever wanted. Milk, honey, green grass, bubbling brooks, fat cows, they're all waiting for you. Just take it. They're a little hesitant, so they decide on this plan. It looks like it's God's plan, but if you go to chapter 13, verse 1, here's what they do. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one, a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord. All the men were heads of the people of Israel. If you read Deuteronomy 1, like 20 verse 28, God told them to go take the land. They were hesitant. So God said, all right, if you want to go send spies, go ahead. In other words, we need to check this out, God, before we, make, we think it's a good idea. I know you told us to go, but let's, can our experts go look at it first? We need to kind of do some evaluations, God, to see if it's a good idea for you. Then we'll agree or not agree. God said, that's fine. So he let them send out spies. They spend one spy from each tribe, captains, chiefs among them. So they're good, strong, wise men. They picked the best. Now when we go to Numbers 14, 1 through 4. Actually, let's go to verse uh, thirteen twenty five. Starting at verse thirteen twenty five, at the end of 40 days, so they were scoping out the land for 40 days, they returned. So they went to the promised land, checked it out for 40 days, tasted the fruit, tasted the grapes, Probably went swimming in the Jordan River. Walking among the wheat fields up around Nazareth because it's really plush up there. Probably took some pomegranates off the trees and threw it at each other because they're having so much fun in there. In uh, verse 26 of Numbers 13, they came to Moses and Aaron. They brought back word. And here's what they told him. We came to the land to which he sent us. It flows with milk And honey, it's great. However, the Amalekites are there. They're strong. There's some tall guys, the descendants of Anak, which is like a Goliath type guys, big guys. And so they, uh, verse 30, they didn't want to go, but verse 30, Caleb said, let us go, let's take it. We can do it. But verse 31, then the men who'd gone up with him said, no, we're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we. So they brought it to the people of Israel, a bad report. So out of 12, 10 didn't want to go. 10 didn't want to go, 2 did. So the majority party said no. The minority party of Caleb and Joshua said, sure. God said, take it, take it. It was so bad. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. You know, God tells them to go. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. <laughs> no! I don't. God, what? Like they're crying. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And they're like, where what did what those guys? Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. So let me get this straight. You'd rather die in a desert than die where there's fat cows and water and green grass and pomegranates. They didn't want to go. Caleb still argued, 6 through 9. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephthah, were among those who had spied out the land. And they say, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it's exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land. He'll give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people because they're bred for us. Look at it the other way around. Don't be scared of them. They need to be scared of us. So Numbers 14, 11, this is the clincher. So you have verse 10. Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron all wanted to go in, but in 10, the congregation wanted to stone them. Let's kill those guys because they want to do something good stone them stone those guys and then god shows up like verse middle of 10 the glory of the lord appeared i mean god showed up it wasn't a good appearance of god like he's coming he shows up and in verse 11 and the lord said to moses and this is one maybe the saddest part of the the whole account in the old testament maybe maybe this is the saddest statement in our own lives how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the things, all the signs, everything I've done for them? So he opened up the Red Sea, He caused all of the plagues, he gave them manna, he had a fire go before him, a fire behind him, never did their shoes or their garment or anything wear out for 40 years. But he, they don't really believe him. They don't believe him. God doesn't get angry. God doesn't get angry because we personally fail. God doesn't get angry because we're not perfect. God gets angry when we think he will personally fail and he's not as perfect as he promised. His anger isn't aroused from our failure. His anger is aroused when we think he's a failure. It's a completely different thing. The, The weight is taken off us and he is saying, I'll take the weight. I'll take it. Let me do it. I don't trust you. I'm going to do it myself. To me, here's, here's a question I was asking a number of people all week. This is a scary question. And it's basically based on verse 3. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Why would anyone in their right mind want to go back to Egypt? Because Egypt was a place of slavery slavery, where other people control your life. You don't control your life. It was a place of misery. They probably worked long hours, treated terribly. And it was a place of lack or want. They didn't really have that much. Onions and leeks. That's not a good soup. No milk, no honey. Why would they rather go back there than trust God in a land beyond their wildest imaginations. I ask this because it's the same hang-up we have almost every day. What stirred in the Israelites' hearts 4,000, 6,000 years ago is still in our heart. It's still in our heart. As David Thoreau once said to... David Thoreau said this 200 years ago. This is scary to me, but I think it's accurate. You've got to listen to it. He said, Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and die with their song still inside them. Why would we rather live in Egypt than trust God? I was asking some people that here's some of the answers I think. Why would we why are we really rather just kind of sit in what we know and don't really thrive, but we survive? Why would we rather that than try. I think number one, because Egypt is a known quantity. Even though it's terrible, we know how to survive it. A lot of us are really proud with living with nothing. I, I remember my dad, my dad would tell me stories of how we would walk two miles to school. But he said it like dad, but you're driving me. Is it okay that you drive me? Is it bad that I'm being driven to school? Yeah, but Chris, you don't realize. We used to walk 2 miles to school. Why are you proud of that? Well, we had tape on our shoes. We didn't get another pair of shoes. As if that is a more glorious kind of life than having new, new pair of shoes. Why is that a more glorious life because we did it and you need to do it. And we were miserable. And miserable people are just better people. Why? I don't <laughs> why? Because I think deep down we believe that somewhat. I know life in some sense, I'm not talking about just being frivolously rich where you are just fat and you aren't grateful. But I'm talking about, is it bad that you can better yourself? Is that bad? I think another reason why they wanted to go back to Egypt is the promised land is unknown. The giant man The giant men may be worse than what I'm already experiencing. Well, they're saying they would rather die. They're going to die anyhow. I was reading this book that said there's a... You can tell when somebody is on the verge of psychosis, which means they are having mental breakdown. The way you can tell somebody is on the verge of psychosis is all of their thoughts are catastrophic. What that means is if something bad happens in their life... They extrapolate it to everything is bad in their life. So the way we're not, the way you can tell you you are starting to lose it mentally is if let's say, I can remember one time I'll tell you I was I was uh, I'll give you an ex- illustration. This is how my mind thinks. I was staining some wood, and some of the the drip of the stain hit my cheek, and I looked in the mirror, and I had a brown spot, and I just read that brown spots could be skin cancer, and I better get it checked out because if I don't get it checked out, I might die. And, I, and then I was looking in the mirror and I'm thinking, oh, I've got a brown spot. And then I took soap and it, oh, that's just the, the uh, you know, the, that's just the stain from the wood. But so quickly my mind jumped to catastrophe. Our minds jumped to catastrophe because we don't know. And for some reason the things we don't know, always, we always see them worse. But the things we see in the past, we always see them better. That's what nostalgia is. You know what nostalgia is? Lies about the past that really weren't true, but we think they're the greatest time ever. I remember when people would tell me, the youth group was so great. Oh, Chris, when you were youth pastor, it was so great. It's nothing like it used to be. The youth group when I was youth pastor is kind of weird. You know, I'd play the guitar. I didn't even know how to play the guitar. So I'd make these kids sing songs. That were I made them up. You know, Mike, you remember, I'd throw chairs. Oh, I miss those days. No, you really don't. I mean, nostalgia is a strange way of making the past great. and catastrophe, the future's going to kill me. So I might as well stay here and die. It's weird. It's in all of us. I think another reason is we have this fear of what if, what if I start and I can't finish. It's the fear of failure and inability. So I'd rather succeed at nothing, because at least I won't fail. And then what if God is not really there for me? I think that's the biggest question. As I was thinking through it, this is what I think is, this is the real thing. Let me explain. I think, see, God is invisible, God is invisible. So even as we, we come here, it's easy to come to church and sing songs and say, I believe in God. It's easy to say sentimental phrases, like God is good, God is good all the time, but it's hard to trust him when my life and my money's on the line. And if I trust him when my life is, money's on the line, what if he really isn't real? Because I don't see him. And that's scary to go out on a limb what if he does not really what if he's not for me? He isn't pleased with me because I fail at everything else. This is if you notice this this is nothing to do with me and my ability, it has everything to do with him and his ability. If he says he'll do it, he'll do it. Somehow I think like if where the rubber meets the road, I really am not sure. I am really not sure. I know this is a strange statement. I'm really not sure we think God is really going to be able to do it. I don't think we believe in miracles. We believe in sending spies that will give us the real human wisdom. I mean, so well, like when I see a stewardship campaign, I think we, what we do is if we write down what you, Ken's going to present to us, a plan of how we can achieve it, you know, through a well-thought-out process, and people like well-thought-out process, I'm not sure God's really going to do it. I don't, do you see him? It's a strange thing in our mind that faith is really believing this invisible God will fulfill what he's promised. So I could say it like this, the promise of the promised land is predicated solely on him and his character, not on me making him upset or not upset. It's solely predicated on him, So if he leads and you choose to follow, faith will believe in two things. Faith believes in two things. If I have faith that believes in two things, he will do it because he promised. He will do it. It's up to him. So the reason why, in a sense, I'm not scared of a stewardship campaign because he'll do it if he wants it. But Chris, what if the money doesn't come in like we wanted? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? But what if it does? But what if I give money and I, you know, some of that money I was going to send on a cabin? That's fine. That's fine. I'm not, God's not mad at you. If you want to go to your, I don't, I just, well, I'll talk about it in a second. He will do it also because he will protect his reputation. Look at how Moses prayed in verses 12 to 22. 14, 12. God says, You know what? I'm so mad that they don't believe in me. I'm going to stripe them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I'll make you, Moses, a nation greater. Moses said, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land they've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, our Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. You go before them. And if you kill these people, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, well, the Lord wasn't able to to bring this people in the land. He will, Moses is appealing. Remember what I said, appeal to his reputation. Moses is appealing to his reputation. And what Moses is saying is, you said you're going to bring these people out. And if the people see that you don't, then that's going to look bad on you. And so, so God does forgive him because he's, that's right. I think God will do it because he will protect his reputation. And then the second thing is he will do it through you. Philippians 2.13 is an incredible verse. Turn to that real quick. This is how we are motivated. We're not motivated by guilt or some pastor getting mad. or We're not even motivated by, well, thought-out, campaign ideas, very wise. Here's what motivates us. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you don't need to worry about it. If God wants you to do it, he'll move you to do it. And it's all predicated on you believe that he'll fulfill what he's calling you to do. If I believe him, I'll do it. That's what daring enough to believe God and obedient enough to share means. If I am daring enough to believe that this God really exists, I'll be obedient. It's not like you have to be. It's just I will be obedient. I'll be obedient to share. It's it's funny as I was thinking through this, I was trying to give up just two illustrations of what I'm trying to communicate. When I was in high school, I loved playing football. I loved it. I love playing like in the neighborhood and I'd always be the quarterback. I love throwing the football. I love being quarterback. But then when I was getting ready to join high school, I left the Catholic school to go to a public school. I didn't know any of the kids and so and I was a good player. I mean I was a good player, but it was a public school. I've never been there before. There were giants in the public school as a you know, bad kids, probably kids smoking weed. You know, I was scared about the high school. So I didn't go out for the football team because I you know, I, they're Nephilim on the team, you know. I don't want to go out. And so my mom told my sister's boyfriend, Mike Hughes, to drive me to the first practice because I didn't want to go. My dad, my dad didn't say anything because he played college football and he didn't want to live his life through me. My mom, though, said, Chris, you love football. Yeah, but mom, this is high school. I don't know these kids. They're going to kill me. So Mike drove me, and I was, I was pretty good. But there was another problem I had. I was really good at quarterback, but, uh, it's too hard a position because I'll have to have too much responsibility. I'll just play defense and just And so my whole high school career all I did is play defense. I didn't even try out for quarterback, even though the quarterback on the team I'd play pickup with him, and I'd, I'd kill him. I know that sounds arrogant. I'd, you just know when you can kill a kid. I'd kill him. But he was the starting quarterback. Because I was scared. I turned conservative. I turned self-protective. To this day, I regret it. I'm like Uncle Rico. I could throw that football over the mountain. If you just see me, I can. I wish I would have tried. But the more I'm getting older, I I don't want to die with, with a song still inside of me. I read this quote yesterday. What kills a nation? Here's the answer. When they no longer dream, and their apathy turns to decadence, and decadence turns to decay. A nation dies from the inside. I don't want to die without trying. And so we have tried the best we can to present the case for why we need to build. If you were here during the business meeting, I tried not to be Nimrod, forcing it on you, saying you have to do I try to say I think this is a wise and a great opportunity for our church. But if you believe, if God is leading, I believe he's leading, and if you choose to follow, he'll do it, and he'll do it through you. And so now the next step is to invite you on an adventure. It's an adventure to me this fundraising campaign. It's an adventure to do more than we have done. And so I'm going to invite Ken up to talk about this adventure that we have.